the message. It's been declared. The Son of God Himself has given it. Imagine knowing it, but failing to pay attention to it. Imagine understanding the truth, but not allowing your heart to be gripped by it so that over time you drift away from it. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, I think a lot of people listening today might be able to say, yeah, I can imagine that uh, there was maybe a point in my life where my heart had really gripped the truth of God's Word, but because of one circumstance or another, I have kind of drifted away from that, and I recognize that that's a problem. Uh, for the person who's identifying with that today and say, man, I want there to be a change, um, what hope is there for that person listening? Hebrews was written to a group of people who seemed to be at that very place, facing that very danger. For circumstances which we can guess at but but can't pin down with absolute certainty, this group of believers were in danger of drifting away from the word of Jesus and the message of Jesus, and, and even from the from the person of Jesus, although the author is sure that ultimately that, that won't happen in their hearts and lives. But he sees the danger and he sees what's going on. And it's it's really wonderful to see the strategy he uses to draw them back. What he really focuses on in this, in this great letter and in this opening section that we're going to think about today, what he really focuses in on is the wonder and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. He shows them and he shows us how radiant and dazzlingly wonderful Jesus is. And he draws us back to looking to Jesus and listening to Jesus by simply magnifying Jesus. And that does our heart a great deal of good as we listen in. Well, let's listen to today's message. We are in the book of Hebrews and continuing a message entitled God's Supreme Word. Here is Jonathan. We live in a pretty casual society, but I think we still understand the importance of rank and of title when those things come to bear. I remember when living in the UK, I first got to know someone who had been knighted by the Queen and had the title Sir So-and-so, and it was a bit of an adjustment to kind of figure out how to relate to him. Then a man joined our church who, who sat in the House of Lords, and it was Lord So-and-so. And again, you need to figure out even just how to greet this person. You know, do you need to stand up or, you know, bow or, or, or something in their presence when they come into the room? Well, probably not. But the title means something. I was chatting with our neighbor recently, and she was giving me a little bit of neighborhood history, which was very interesting. And she was telling me that the man in charge of the Canadian Army used to live in the, in the house across the street, General So-and-So. And I was just thinking, you know, what would that be like if he still lived there? I got kind of nervous at the idea. You know, when taking out the trash in the morning when you're a bit disheveled and still kind of half awake, you know, if he comes by, would I need to sort of stop and salute or something? Um, anyway, you get the point. Uh, rank matters. D titles mean something. And here the writer of Hebrews wants to show us that the Lord Jesus carries the most senior rank. He has the most exalted name in all the universe. In particular, he wants to show us that the name given to Jesus sets him above the angels. He highlights that issue for us in verses 3 and 4, and then it becomes really the focus of, of the rest of the chapter. Notice with me, verse 4, he, he, he sat down, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As we read through the text a few moments ago, you may have noticed that the writer focuses quite a lot, actually, on angels. 
He compares Jesus quite a lot to angels. That's the main comparison going through the chapter. And that's a little bit puzzling, but I think we do need to try and puzzle it out. We could take a fair bit of time doing a Bible study on this one. But the answer to the puzzle is found, I think, when we discover this one fact. In a few places in the Bible, we are told that the angels were involved in the delivery of the Old Covenant law, the delivery of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. You don't need to turn these up, but let me just mention a couple of verses maybe for you to look up later. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, Paul says this, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Acts chapter 7, verse 53. This is Stephen speaking to the people of Israel. You who received the law as delivered by angels. And then right here in Hebrews itself, chapter 2 and verse 2, speaking of the law at Sinai, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, and, and so on and so on. The people of Israel knew that the angels were divine messengers of authority. The word angel actually means messenger. They were sent from heaven above. They were involved in the delivery of the law even at Mount Sinai. And trying to put the story together, trying to put ourselves in the shoes of these first century Jewish believers, it seems pretty likely that these folk were coming under pressure over this very issue from others within the religious community of Israel. Their friends were saying something like this, it seems. You know, the law of Moses, the old covenant, it, it came to us through the angels themselves. Now, if all that came to us through the angels, divine you know, messengers from heaven, well, if that's the case, why would you dare step away from the priestly offerings at the temple as prescribed in the law? Why would you take on that kind of spiritual risk? The angelic message, the law itself, it told us to do these things. All this rite and all this ritual, it is mandated by angelic law. You see, this is where spiritual safety is to be found, at the synagogue, at the temple, not with any would-be Messiah. Stick with the law. Stick with the angelic word. And in response to these pressures to help these believers stand firm, the writer says this to them. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is higher even than the angels. Yes, God spoke in many ways at former times, verse 1, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God the Father has declared that Jesus is not merely a prophet or a messenger, but he is Son. That's the name that he's inherited, that's the name that was confirmed in a very special way when the Father raised Jesus to his right hand on high. And so the Son is higher. The Son is exalted above all others. Listen to the Son. Now, the name Son, the title Son, that's, that's the name that the writer's talking about here uh, in verse 4. Just notice how he continues verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my Son? Now, I'm pretty sure that the Jewish believers addressed by this letter, I'm pretty sure that they weren't denying that Jesus should be called Son. They weren't denying it, but the big question was this, what does that name Son actually mean? What are the implications of recognizing that Jesus is God's Son? You see, the same word, the same title, it can be used with different levels of, of meaning. We know that in our own culture, in our, our own society. Think of the 
title secretary, for instance, in the world of work. It's maybe a little less common in the modern office place, but a, a secretary could be a type of administrative assistant, someone who answers the phone and, uh, and manages email and, and takes messages, that kind of thing. Or think, for instance, of the secretary of state in the United States of America, one of the most powerful people, one of the highest offices in the land. It means different things. And a title, well, it needs to be put in context for us to know what it means. You and I, sitting here today, when we hear Jesus referred to as God's Son, we immediately start to think second person of the Trinity, eternal divine Son of God, and we're right to do that. The New Testament has taught us that that's the ultimate implication of that name. But for people living in the first century from a Jewish background, to call Jesus God's son, for them, to their ears, it may have just meant that he was the promised Messiah, the promised coming king who would liberate them from their enemies. In verse 5, the writer quotes two very, very important Old Testament passages that are both about the king of Israel in their original context. Both of them, of course, point forward to the Savior King, the Messiah. In verse 5, we've got, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That comes from Psalm 2, a psalm that would be sung on the occasion of the king's enthronement at Zion. The next verse there is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that's God's promise to King David that he will establish David's son as a very great king with a never-ending kingdom. And of this royal son, this king to be born, God says this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So here are two very important Old Testament passages about the king. And in both of them, here's the key point, the king is referred to as God's son. Now, in Old Testament times, the people didn't read those two passages and immediately think that the current king, David or Solomon, or indeed any coming king, would literally be God's divine, eternal son, second person of the Trinity. See, it was possible for an Old Testament Israelite to imagine David or Solomon being referred to as God's son, simply meaning this, simply meaning that the king has a very special relationship with God. He's chosen by God. He rules as God's representative. It's a kind of exalted language, a kind of acceptable exaggeration, if you like. It's a bit like an older man, maybe a teacher or a boss, saying to a young student or a trainee with whom they have a, a good mentoring relationship, saying, look, son, you're doing a great job. Good work, son. They're not saying that the student or the trainee is their biological son. They're speaking to them as a mentor. And the people of Israel, I think they could have imagined the Messiah being like that with God, God's very special representative. In some sense, you could call him God's son, the prophets do, but that surely doesn't mean he's God's actual son, the divine son of the Father. You see, when those sorts of claims start coming out, the divinity of Jesus in the Gospels, there are cries of blasphemy. Well, the writer doesn't want to let these believers be drawn into that kind of thinking. He wants to show them, he wants to prove to them that when Jesus the Messiah is called Son of God, it means that He is the supreme being in all the universe, the true Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself. And to do that, to make that point, to prove that point, He draws them to the Old Testament itself. And He shows them and He shows us that the Old Testament always expected a king who would be God's true Son, even God Himself. 
Now, we can't possibly look at all the Old Testament quotations here in chapter 1. That would be a, a sermon series on its own. But I would like to try and see how Hebrews makes this case from the Old Testament, just to follow his logic for a moment. And I'd like to look at one of the Old Testament quotations in a little bit of detail. In verses 8 and 9, the writer quotes from Psalm 45. And I'd love to turn there together, if we could, Psalm 45. This is another, if you like, a kingly psalm. This is a psalm all about Israel's king, the person that another psalm refers to as God's son, Psalm 45. And this particular psalm, it's written for the occasion, actually, of a royal wedding. And what I'd like to do is just read through the psalm, and you could follow with me. And as I read, look for the moment when the psalm stops making sense. (laughs) That is, look for the moment when the psalm stops making sense if it just refers to some ordinary Israelite king in the history of the nation, an ordinary king in Jerusalem, or even David or Solomon, someone else. Just look for the moment when the psalm stretches beyond that of a normal king. Psalm 45 and verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Okay, so far, is that all right? Speaking of any any king on his wedding day? So far, so good, right? Verse 4, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand um, teach uh, awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. I think we're still okay, right? Your throne, O God, uh uh-oh. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is getting a little confusing. The, The psalm just called the king God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, that's confusing. But maybe the psalmist in verse 6 just stopped talking to the king and switched and started talking to God just for a moment. But, but oh no, look at the middle of verse 7. He's still talking to the king. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So what have we got here? We've got a king. We've got a king whom the psalmist addresses in verse 6 as God. But this king called God is anointed by someone called God. Middle of verse 7 with the oil of gladness. We've got two persons, both referred to as God, one of whom is the king. What's going on here? How can this make any sense at all? Hebrews just loves to pick up on Old Testament passages that stretch beyond their historical reality and point to a greater reality to come. He loves to pick up on Old Testament passages that only make any sense when they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the point here is that the psalm points to a coming king, a greater king to come, who is not only close to God, he's not only special to God, a kind of son-like figure, but a king who actually is the son of God. A king who, when you call him God's son, it actually means that he is the very son, the true son of the father, the divine son, the eternal son. And so back now to Hebrews chapter 1, 
When the writer quotes Psalm 45 there in verses 8 and 9, familiar words now, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. When he draws our eye to Psalm 45, he's telling us that the promised King of Israel, he is the true Son, the very Son, the divine Son of God, exalted above all other kings in history. He's exalted above the angels. He is seated now at the right hand of the majesty on high. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message today is called God's Supreme Word, and we're taking a look at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Hope you'll stay with us. We're going to continue this message in just a little bit. But if you happen to join us late or you have to leave early or you just want to go back and listen to Jonathan's teaching again, you can always do that by coming to our website and listen to each and every broadcast there. The website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. That is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, if you did join us late, we're in the book of Hebrews looking at chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. So grab a Bible and meet us there. Once again, here is Jonathan. God has spoken his supreme word in Jesus. He's given the supreme name to Jesus. And the implication is simply this. We must listen to Jesus. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The people of Israel, they had to listen to the law as delivered by angels. To ignore the old covenant law, it brought retribution, it brought punishment. But now the very Son of God has come to earth to deliver not a law, but a message of salvation. A message that we can be reconciled to our maker because the perfect Son of God has made purification for sin. He's brought cleansing through his blood. The message, middle of verse 3, was declared at first by the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus himself, then attested to these early converts by the apostles, by those who heard Jesus. And God himself is borne witness to the truth by the wonders and the miracles performed through the power of the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus and in the acts of the apostles. The message, it's been declared. The Son of God himself has given it. But imagine now ignoring the message. Imagine knowing it, but failing to pay attention to it. Imagine understanding the truth, but not allowing your heart to be gripped by it so that over time you drift away from it. And remember, this isn't a message about, a, I don't know, a big sale at Canadian Tire or a new product line added at Walmart. This isn't the kind of news that comes in a flyer and ends up immediately in the recycling bin. No, this is, verse 3, the message of a great salvation. This is the message that a hurricane is coming and there's a rescue helicopter sitting outside waiting to take you to safety. This is a message that the ship is sinking and there's a place on the lifeboat for you. This is the message that you're alienated from your maker, dead in your sins, facing the prospect of a terrible judgment to come. But Jesus has come to rescue you from that and he's come to bring you into the joy of friendship with your maker. Chapter 1 is one of the most theologically rich chapters in all the Bible, I think. In some ways, we've only scratched the surface of all that it says about Jesus and about his majestic name. But having laid all that out, having done all that Old Testament work, chapter 2 and verse 1 is the big take-home. 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's the big punchline. And in some ways, I think it could seem like a little bit of a letdown. After all that buildup, you know, don't you have something a bit more impressive for us? Don't you have something a little bit more dramatic after all that theology, after all that text work? Is this really the best you can do, Mr. Hebrews? But actually, chapter 2, verse 1, it's exactly what we need to hear, isn't it? And it's exactly what we need to do. You see, each of us, we need to learn, and we need to learn again to pay attention to what Jesus says. We need actually to learn to pay closer attention to what Jesus says. Actually, we need to learn to pay much closer attention to what Jesus says. We need to learn to pay attention because it is by listening to his voice in Scripture, it is by paying attention to what he said to us in his word that our hearts will be guarded from drifting away from him. Friends, I wonder how it's going for you today listening to the voice of Jesus. I wonder how it's going in your own daily reading of the Word of God. I wonder if you have that habit. I wonder if you're managing to maintain it. Maybe you've never really developed the habit, and, and maybe it, it's just time to start. It's not rocket science. It can sometimes feel daunting, but it's a simple thing. Pick up a Bible at a set time of the day, read a chapter, and pray about what you've seen there. Maybe you've had that habit, but in recent months or years or decades, it's fallen by the wayside. Life has just been so busy. There's been so much else going on. It, it happens, doesn't it? Well, maybe this week is the week to start again. If you have children at home, I wonder how it's going, helping them to hear the, the word of Jesus. I wonder if the word of Jesus has a central place in your family life and in your home. Do you read the scriptures with your children so that they would be drawn to him so that they would be kept by him. I wonder how it's going, making time to hear the word of Jesus on Sundays. It's, it's wonderful that you're here today. We're delighted that you're here. But maybe being here with us is a kind of sporadic thing for you. You come when the calendar's clear, when, when the kids don't have sports on. You come when the weather isn't too nice and you're not being drawn outside. <laughs> you come when it's not too cold and you're not tempted to stay home. So you come sort of the third week in October and the second week in April. <laughs> Maybe the challenge for you is just to resolve to be here each week. Not, not to let a week go by without hearing the word of Jesus. Someone once described Sunday gatherings at church like a utility pole in a long power line. Be, between each pole, you see how the line kind of, how it sags. And if you miss multiple poles in a row, you find that the line is down on the ground and it's a hazard. Well, to cover the distance, we need to be here each week to be reminded, to hear afresh the voice of Jesus, to be exhorted to trust him and to follow him. For each one of us, there's a challenge here in verse 1 of chapter 2. If we're not paying any attention to the word of Jesus, we need to start paying attention to the word of Jesus. If we're paying some attention to the word of Jesus, we need to hear that challenge to pay closer attention, even much closer attention. We need to pay attention, friends, because the one who speaks to us, he is the supreme word from God above. He is the royal and the eternal son seated on high at the Father's right hand. 
You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths as we're wrapping up our message, God's Supreme Word. It's part of our series, So Great a Salvation, taking a look at the book of Hebrews. And if you want to go back and listen to this broadcast again, you can do that at our website. Just come to EncounterTheTruth.org. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app. Hope you'll check that out. That's free. You'll find it at your app store. And that's a great way to stay connected with Jonathan's teaching, whatever it fits your schedule. Again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org or listen through the app, which you'll find at the app store. But whether you're listening online, through the app, or on the radio, it's all made possible through your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book that Jonathan has picked out. It is called Faithful God. It's written by Sinclair Ferguson. And in this book, the author takes a look at the Bible book of Ruth. And we see how it contains far more about God than its small size would suggest. We'd love to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or the website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For our producer, Mark Brenna, and our Bible teacher, Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.